Okay, we're in huh? 350 yesterday in the clinic. Yeah. They add up in a hurry, too. <laughs> All right, uh, we're actually in 3 John. Uh, well, we're supposed to be in Jude, but let me just close out 3 John before we get into Jude. I don't want to go through very much. I just want to read three verses of 3 John and then... Uh, well, four verses, and then uh, and then we'll go ahead and move over. If you start in verse nine of Third John, we've been talking about this this letter. You remember was written written first, second, third John, written toward the end of the first century. Uh, between the three of them, they talk about their fellowship with God and their avoidance of those who are teaching error, and then their fellowship with each other. And this one does deals with that fellowship with each other, and specifically where we want to read tonight that we didn't have time to get into on Sunday has to do with. Uh, egotism and pride and all of that that had come into play, starting in verse 9 of Third John. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating uh, against us with malicious words. Uh, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish, uh, who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. And then he goes on to say he would like to have write, written other things, but he'll talk about those when he visits. But what I wanted to highlight, just to close up what we started on in Third John on Sunday, is the fact that there's an individual who has gained prominence in the congregation that evidently was the uh, intended recipient of this book and as we talked about on Sunday you know one of the things that was happening is because of the fact that John's the last of living apostle so it's not like there are apostles that are traveling around and continuing these missionary journeys and things and in fact John's age is preventing him from doing too much of anything at this point and health condition uh, and so there are these people that have been taught by uh, others and they've had hands laid on them and things like that that are traveling around teaching and uh and what was happening as they would come to each town is those, those places, those congregations would support them and help them, and then they would continue on their journey. But this guy, Gaius here, has uh, developed so much power that he doesn't want these other people around, uh, these other speakers, and so he's forbidding these people to be around. And most specifically, John says, you know, I wrote a letter to you before, but you didn't get it. Uh, I don't know whether that was one of the first two books that he wrote here or whether that was some kind of a letter that we don't have remaining with us today uh, i suspect it was second john but i can't confirm that without any kind of a doubt but the point is john sent the letter and gaius wouldn't let anybody have that letter and on top of that he didn't want any the, those who delivered the letter to be accepted by anybody in the congregation and if you did that he'd kick you out so you see this guy has gained an incredible amount of power that's a dangerous thing you know there is a reason uh, that when you read about leadership of the congregations of the Lord's Church in the New Testament, there's a plurality uh, in things such as the eldership. There's a reason. And it's not just so people will have different views in dealing with whatever issue that they're facing. It's because nobody should have power over the kingdom that God has power over, right? Okay, so this guy got power, and that created a lot of conflict in the church. And as a consequence of that, as Paul sends this letter, and it is Demetrius who is, uh, by the way, have I been saying Gaius? Yeah, it's Diotrephes, not Gaius. I don't know why I've done that. But anyway, 
Uh, when Demetrius uh, shows up evidently delivering this letter, John wanted to make sure that the letter got through as well as the people understood. You Look, don't be afraid of that guy because uh, God's in charge of all of this. Okay, the book of Jude. Uh, the author of Jude is a little bit of a enigma, if you will. There's three Judes that are mentioned in the New Testament. I think that the evidence supports the idea that this is Jude, who is the half-brother of Jesus, who is also the brother of James, who wrote the book of James and also was one of the elders in the church in Jerusalem. Uh, and I think that comes out even in the introduction. He and James write in very much the same way. Don't know the recipients of this particular book, though I think that some things tend to lean toward the idea of it being people who would be more familiar with the accounts of the Old Testament, uh, which would lead you to believe that maybe they either they were Jewish or at least had some kind of a Jewish background, at least a, more knowledge of the, of the background than the, most of the Gentiles had, uh, which makes it seem likely that this book was written... Uh, you know, at least somewhere close to A.D. 70, because it was in A.D. 70 that Jerusalem was destroyed. Now, it could have been written after that. In fact, some dated as late as A.D. 80, and that would be okay, because still those people, the Christians who had come out of Judaism, would still have that background, right? I don't think it was written before about A.D. 68, and the reason for that is... Uh, uh, John actually, or rather Jude actually, takes some things that Peter has already written in the book of Second Peter, and he doesn't really quote them, but he kind of quotes them, he kind of states them again, and he says the things that Peter warned you that were going to happen are now happening. And so it's, it's got to be in some close relation to the book of Second Peter. Uh, so I suspect, this is just my general dating, because of the fact that he doesn't mention the destruction of Jerusalem, I suspect that Jude is written somewhere around A.D. 68 or 69, which would have been right before the destruction of Jerusalem, yet still late enough after the book of Second Peter that the things that Peter warned them were going to happen, and now Jude says they are happening, uh, that gives all of that time to occur. Does that make sense? Okay, but I certainly don't want to be dogmatic about a date, or even for that matter, the author. I mean, the author's God. I don't really think it matters who was the penman. Uh, the author is God. But let's start in verse 1. I'll try to get through the book tonight. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied by you. I, I like the way he introduced himself, and again, similar to the way James does it. And I like that because we know the history, right? We know it was the brothers of Jesus who rejected him, just like most of the Jews did in the, in the beginning during his earthly ministry. And it was not until after the resurrection of Jesus, that his brothers uh, changed and understood what was happening. And so what record we have never has them identifying themselves as, you know, literally being his brothers. And I find that interesting because, you know, in today's society today, we want connections, don't we? You know, it's the people you know that make you kind of more important or give you an inside information. If, if you're like the brother of Jesus, I mean, how much more inside can you get, Right. So I could see that being something that would be a temptation to, to kind of use. And so as I read the way that both he and James introduced themselves, I read them intently and intentionally avoiding that. It's like they're expressing their humility and saying, you know, I'm not any more important than anybody else. I'm just the same kind of servant that everybody else is. Uh, but he does connect himself to James because that's his family, right? 
Okay, and he does something right here in the beginning that he does a few times in this book, and that is he tends to write in threes. Those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved. Uh, Now, as I see those three, it's interesting to me that as he words them, what I see is something that has happened in the past in what God has accomplished through his prophecies and through the sending of his son. And then I see something that's happening in the present in that they are now Christians, but I also see what's coming in the future in the fact that they are being preserved. So, uh, so Jude basically starts in the very beginning and says who he is and says he's writing to those people that God has always taken care of. Now, that's going to be important as he keeps going through this book. Verse 3. Uh, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. This is a challenging verse for me. Uh, not because it's difficult to understand, uh, but it's difficult to understand why it's here. And I don't think we've actually tried maybe to understand why it's here. What we usually read and say here, and I'm not saying this is necessarily wrong, but what we usually say is Jude started this letter about how much, uh, you know, appraising them and talking about this common salvation and building them up and positive and exhorting them. And then, and then here in verse 3, he had to change and write about something he didn't want to write about. I don't know why he would start the letter and just stop in the middle of it and change like that, but tell him what he wanted to do. I think there's something more here. You know, if I'm writing an email or a letter or something, and I decide after the first few sentences that I'm going to write about something else, what do I usually do? Just delete it, right? Just delete it and start over, right? Uh, so I think there's more here than, than Jude saying, well, I started writing about this, but I changed my mind. I think rather than saying he started writing about this, what he's saying is, what I wanted to do was to write about something that was encouraging, that was uplifting, that was strengthening, that was uniting with us. And because of what is happening, I can't do that. You know, it's like it's like your kids. You want to anybody here want to be the disciplinarian? No, you don't want to do that. Right. Why do you do it? Because you love them, right? So sometimes you have to do that because, because you love them. Okay, what Jude is saying here is, you know, I love you and I, I wanted to do good things and send you this good inspirational and positive message. But unfortunately, because of what's happening, I find it necessary to write this letter instead. And this letter is about challenging them to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Both uh, those statements there are significant. It's not just... Defend the truth. He's talking about hanging onto the rope like your life depends on it. He's talking about defending the faith because if you don't defend the faith, and by the way, truth is truth, right? So no matter how much error is out there in the world, it's never going to defeat truth, is it? Okay, so truth is always going to win. So then he challenges them to defend it. Why do you have to defend it if it's always going to win? I mean, if God wins in the end, why does he need me to defend him? Yeah, it's not that God needs it. It's that we need it. We need the defense. Because what happens when we don't defend it is people get snatched away to the error. And we might get snatched away to the error. So you've got to defend it earnestly. And also significant here is the fact that you remember Paul writing about inspiration to Timothy. And he talked about all scripture is given by inspiration. The words he used there literally translates God breathed. All of the scripture came from literally God's breath, if you will. 
and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. You remember all of that? So now Jude writes about this faith that was once for all delivered. Peter was writing about, ins- or rather, uh, Paul was writing to Timothy about inspiration. Paul also wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2 about inspiration. And he said it was words that God gave, that God compared spiritual things with spiritual things. And he told them what to record. It came from God. Now Jude said it was all delivered and done once for all. There are whole religious groups today that are based on the idea that God's still writing. God's still inspiring. Uh, In fact, even people that are not in these religious groups that hold that position, sometimes I've heard it from people in the church who will talk about what God told them. Or what God, you know, that nudging. They got a nudging from God. And God, listen, the faith that is the Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the message of how to follow it was delivered by God, and it was delivered by God once. And it was delivered by God one time for everybody. Does anybody here remember the theme of the book of Romans? I know a lot of you wrote it down. That's close, yeah. Nobody's ever been or ever will be saved outside of the blood of Jesus. That's the gospel, right? So... Nobody, the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus happened in the first century, right? The message written by inspiration by all of these individuals who record it all occurred, if if Revelation is the last book, and I think the evidence clearly shows that it is, by at least 98 A.D. So before even 100 A.D., all of the Bible has been recorded, then how in the world can it still be applicable to us today? Because God wrote it. You know, you write a dictionary today, next year it's out of date, isn't it? An encyclopedia, out of date. Science book, out of date. Computer book, it's out of date next week. But God's book's applicable for all time. So Jude says, protect it, defend it, for yourself even, because it was delivered and it's going to be the same doctrine that's been delivered all along. Verse 4, here's why. For... Certain men have crept in. Now, before we read further, I want to remind you that in 2 Peter chapter 2, one of the things that Peter said was going to happen is people were coming. People were going to use these, we call them plastic words, you remember? Deceptive words. And through those deceptive words, they were going to deceive many people. So now Jude says they're here. People have crept in. What's the word he uses next? Unnoticed. Who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men. Who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness. And deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember John wrote in two of his books about these individuals that he called antichrist. And the definition of that by John was that those who denied that Jesus came in the flesh. Well, evidently the, the, the false teachers that Peter warned about that would use these deceptive means and these twistable words and all of that, the Jude now says they are there. They're not, in a sense, denying that Jesus came in the flesh so much so as taking that to a position where they deny that we're actually flesh. And that seems odd, doesn't it? I mean, we're here, aren't we? Aren't we flesh here? But the teaching that was 
pretty prominent at this particular time and evidently was going through some of these churches is not that we don't exist this way, but that rather we are spiritual beings. And this spiritual existence of us, that's all a holy thing, but this physical nature that we have, it's all a... It's an unholy thing, and it can't be holy. And so we have this divided body that we are in, and this spiritual side is supposed to be given to God, but this physical side, since it's all debased anyway, you just do whatever you want to do, right? Because they're not, they're not connected. And so the idea was this live this licentious life. If it feels good to you, do it. But you can still be spiritual. Listen, people don't still teach that today, but we do live that way, don't we? You know, we want to live any way we want to live, but as long as we show up inside those doors on Sunday then everything's okay, right? And the Jews said that. You know, how can God be turned against us? We've still got the temple in Jerusalem. It's still there. Everything's great. So God says, well, I'll show you. I'll take the temple away too. You, you just can't have it both ways. And so what Jude is saying here is you've got to be aware that these people are here. And God said all along that they were going to be like this. It's not that he said these men are intent. They're going to be the lost ones. or they're going to be. He's saying there are people coming who are like this. And now Jude's saying they're here. We see them, we hear them, we don't be caught off guard. If they snuck in unnoticed, people were off guard, weren't they? It's not new. It's certainly not new for us today. The devil uses that method quite uh, easily today. I have been in places where I have seen. This is actually a tactic. The, uh, you've heard me speak a few times about the belief that the second coming happened in A.D. 70. It's called realized eschatology or some other things that are its name. But uh, I actually know, personally know people who have uh, been in congregations where somebody has gone in and become a member in that congregation simply because they wanted to sneak this teaching in. And they did. We had somebody try to do that here, by the way. You may not know this, but several years ago at, our, at the old building, we had somebody come in and start trying to present some of those ideas. And, uh, and uh, they, were, they were secretive or sly enough as they did it that people didn't notice that's how error gets in doesn't just jump in and say hey you know what let's give all this up and change and do something else that's not the way it works take a little step at a time and one step at a time all of a sudden you become something different than what you were so jude says they're here and we need to be paying attention to it all right verse five but i want to remind you though once you knew this that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, he's going to give three things again, just like I said he did a while ago. So his first thing is, listen, you know history. I talked about the fact this is one of the reasons I think these were Jewish readers or at least people who have a history in understanding the Old Testament and Judaism because that's where it came from, wasn't it? I mean, I know the promise was made to Abraham, but when the Israelites became the Israelites, wasn't it when they came out of Egypt and went to Mount Sinai? Okay, so he says, here's what you know. All those people that came out of Egypt, how many of them made it to uh, Canaan? Yeah, Joshua and Caleb, right? The rest of them died in the wilderness, right? Keep reading, we'll figure out his point. And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own habitation, he has reserved an everlasting change under darkness for the judgment of of the great day not the end of the sentence but stop there now this time he's talking about authority uh he's talking about the idea of authority he's not saying the angels didn't live where they were supposed to live that's not the idea of this domain here he's talking about the idea of authority the angels have responsibilities god has given them responsibilities and he's given them the authority to uh carry out those responsibilities well let's look at it this way he's also given us jobs hasn't he 
and he's given us the authority to do the jobs, right? But what if we go beyond that authority? What did John say about who, those who go beyond and do not abide in the doctrine of Christ? What did he say? They don't have God anymore, right? So don't receive them into your house. So the angels, the same way, if they step out of their place of authority, their position of authority or the authority that God has given them, they've gone beyond that and they've sinned, haven't they? All right? And again, this is not an area where I want to be dogmatic, but I, I think what he's tra- talking about is Genesis chapter 3. You have the account where Satan, who, by the way, was a created angel, and you have the account in Genesis chapter 3 where all of a sudden in this perfect world where there's no sin... This angel that was created, Satan, comes to a place where he stands before Eve and says, God's holding out on you. God, God didn't really mean it when he said to you that you're going to die if you eat that fruit. He's holding out on you. He didn't want you to be like him and, and know good things and evil things and all of that. And so he's holding out on you. What he's doing when he makes that statement or that accusation is he's going beyond his authority, isn't he? Did God give him the job of deceiving man and bringing sin? No, he went out of his authority. And the consequence of that was God punished him, right? He and those who were with him, right? Okay, keep going. Got one more, a third. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So his third example, again, one they look back on, it's before Israel, but it was Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember the account, right? Abraham and his family has grown. Lot is there, and his, his, those with him have grown. The servants have grown. The flocks have grown. They divide up. Lot and his family end up in the area of the plains with Sodom and Gomorrah around the river, right? The well-watered plains. Didn't turn out to be such a great idea, did it? And in fact, God brought judgment on those areas, and he did it with, well, how did he destroy them? Fire and brimstone, didn't he? That's a picture of judgment. Okay, so why does, why does Jude now give these three things where he talks about, you know, the Israelites? I don't know how you connect the Israelites to the devil and his angels, right? Or the angels who rebelled, and I don't know how you connect it to the sexually immoral, immoral people of Sodom and Gomorrah, but you got the Israelites. Then you got the angels, and then you've got Sodom and Gomorrah. What, what's the point? Well, let's see the next verse. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. You know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a book that I believe is a repentance of Solomon. It's near the end of his life, and he's had all this wisdom for so much of his life, but the problem is he didn't really apply it. He told other people about it. He wrote about it. He didn't live so much of it. As he got to the end of his life, the book of Ecclesiastes appears to be a repentance and to write down all those things that he has learned. And one of the things that he mentions over and over in that book is, you know, there's really no changes under the sun. And what that means is people are the same. Problems are the same. Events are the same. Details Maybe they're a little different. People maybe are a little different, but things are consistent. You see that, right? And so what Jude now says about these, he calls them dreamers. Uh, these people who are the false teachers is they're just exactly like the Israelites were when they left Egypt. In that they, they want freedom, but they want it on their terms. Isn't that why they murmured? 
They cross the, they cross the sea on dry ground, and they get to the other side, and they say, what, you bring us out here to die? You can't take care of us? You don't give us the kind of food we want or the kind of water we want? Over and over, they go into the land, and they say, yeah, it's what God said it was, but you know what? We can't do that. They don't believe him, right? Okay, these dreamers are, are like them in that, yeah, they want to be spiritual, but they want to do it on their terms. And then they're like the angels. And what was it about the angels? Well, they took authority that didn't belong to them, right? They took authority that didn't belong to them. And that's what these dreamers are doing or these false teachers are doing. Is they're ch- anybody who changes what God teaches is taking authority. That doesn't, they don't have a right to do it. We say things like that about the eldership. The eldership tells us what to, uh, you know, about the doctrine of Christ. That's not their job. The elders don't determine doctrine. God already determined that. We've got to follow it or not, but God determined doctrine. Elders don't change that, or any preacher can't change that. Anybody who does has gone beyond the authority, and they're just like these dreamers, right? What about the third one with Sodom and Gomorrah? What was it about them? Well, what was it about them is, we'll just do whatever we want to do and be happy today because nothing really goes wrong tomorrow. So these, these false teachers that are influencing the Christians during the first century that Jude's writing to have all of these same characteristics as, these, as the devil's used all along. And it's no different today, is it? Keep reading. I'm not going to get anywhere close to the end of this. Yet, Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. You know, we don't have everything recorded in the Bible that happened in history, right? You know that, right? In fact, we don't have everything recorded in the Bible that happened with Israel or even with the early church or the early Christians. What we have recorded for us is what God uh, said we needed to have, what God directed that we should have in order to accomplish what we need to accomplish. What we know about the event described here is that after, at the end of that 40-year wandering in the wilderness when a whole generation had died off, all those above the age of 20, except Joshua and Caleb. Moses is still alive, isn't he? Yeah, Moses is still alive. But God's already told him he's not going to enter in, and it connected back to the sin at the, with the water, right? Second time they wanted the water, and he again took authority that wasn't his, and he struck a rock that God told him to speak to it, and so God told him he's not going to enter in. He's going to die before they get there. But the thing is, when he died, God took him up and showed him the land, didn't he? And then where'd his body go? We don't know. They didn't know. God handled that. But somewhere in the account, unrecorded for us at that time, Jude says that what was happening was there was a battle. And there was a battle over the body of Moses. And this battle occurred, that occurred over the body of Moses was between Michael, who is listed in the scriptures in several times as one of the, what we call archangels, one of the the authoritative angels that carry out God's commands in various situations, uh, and the devil fighting over the body of Moses. And I find that interesting because what's the body of Moses matter? <laughs> you know, it doesn't really matter, does it? But there's a battle that occurred, and I see it. I see a reasoning for that battle. If I wanted to try to be, you know, to understand a little more about what might be going on, at least from the devil's perspective, I see it because Israel worshipped anything that they could touch, right? So if they could just Anybody here ever been to Red Square in Moscow? Nobody? Okay, Shane, you've been there? No? Okay. Yeah. 
Let me tell you, in Red Square, there's uh, St. Peter's Cathedral's there, and behind it, there's this, well, it's not red, but there's a big square there, and there's a structure. It's not a big structure, it's a small structure, and you can visit it as a tourist, or at least you could when I was there. And you go in one side, and you go down these ramps, and you turn, and you go down another ramp, and the way you get out is the same way on the other side, and right in the middle of it is the body in a glass coffin, and it's preserved. And that body is linen. Because they look back to that, I don't know why today, but they look back to that as the revolution of 1918 that began communism. Instead of the czars, they get rid of the czars, so they, so they have his body, and that's like, you know, somehow holy to the communists, right? Does that make sense to people? What do you think Israel does if all of a sudden they have Moses' body? They worship it, right? So I see the perspective of why the devil wants Moses' body, because maybe he could use it to trip up Israel again and again and again and again. Uh, but the point that's being made here is not about that. That's just the extra credit stuff that I, tr- I come up with on my own. Uh, no, the point of this is Michael, who has been given evidently authority by God to go and get the body of Moses upon his death, has a battle with Satan. Satan rejects the authority of God. And rather than Michael fighting this battle, what's he say? Yeah, you know how I say that? God will handle this. Yeah, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You know, it's, it's very difficult in our world today to see the, the things that happen and not want to take matters into your own hands, especially if they happen to you, right? How many times have you seen on the news these people that, and I'm not, I certainly don't want to justify abortion. I'm certainly opposed to the murder that's abortion. But I want to ask a question. What does it, what, what possible right is there in murdering a doctor that commits abortions? What possible right is there in doing that? Does that solve God's purposes? No. No, it doesn't. What we have to recognize is God's the one that's going to handle all this. I'm not capable of handling it. I don't have the wisdom to handle it. I'm not the judge. And actually, I'm glad I'm not because I don't always ever get everything right. And so what he's saying here is you got, a, you got these false teachers here, and they're acting just like people have always acted as far as those who oppose God. But you know what? God can handle it. Now, the reason you didn't defend or contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered is because the people around you need to also know God can handle it. Don't go with them. All those people, think about the two spies that came back. That's the easiest account. The two spies that came back from Canaan to Kadesh Barnea and told the people, yeah, they're right, it's exactly what God said, and let's go take it. What if Israel had listened to them? How different would that account be? All those people that had never been in the land, never seen what was there, listened to the ten spies and died. So he says you've got to contend for the faith because God's going to handle this. And so we've got to protect people. Verse 10. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things, they corrupt themselves. That sounds like a great person, right? You ever said anything that you really didn't know what you were talking about? I think about Peter here. I, I feel bad for Peter. I'm glad that I didn't live then because I didn't want all my stuff recorded for you to be studying years and years later. Uh, but I think about Peter here when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? 
and there are Moses and Elijah's there, and they're speaking with Jesus. And I emphasize Peter, though. I know he wasn't the only one there, but I emphasize Peter because when that event occurred, it was Peter that spoke up and said, hey, let's build these tabernacles or altars for all three of you. And that's when the two were overshadowed, and they could only see Jesus. And God said, you know, this is my son, hear him, right? Okay, and then as they're going down, it says that Peter only said that because he didn't know what else to say. In other words, he didn't know what he was talking about. Okay, but I know lots of people. I know lots of preachers who, uh, if somebody asks them a question, it doesn't matter if they know the answer or not, they're going to give an answer. Because you've got to look smart, right? You've got to look like you know what you're talking about. And that's the way he describes these false teachers. They'll tell you something just because they don't want to look like they don't know what they're talking about. They want to look smarter than you. And the things that they do know about, well, they twist it around and, and corrupt it and make it what it is not. And I would think back to, Third John, that we just read those last few verses. Isn't that how that guy got in power? Corrupted what was the truth? Got the power over the people? And so Jude says, listen, the reason he's talking about them is not because they don't know them. The reason he's talking about them is that helps them defend the truth. Because if they know their enemy, and if they know the truth, they can stand, can't they? Wow. I thought I would have extra time tonight, and I'm not even close, and we're out of time. So here's what I'm going to do. We're supposed to start Revelation Sunday morning, but as you know, I don't have to stay to schedule anymore for a little while. So uh, we'll finish Jude on Sunday, and then we'll start our introduction to Revelation with whatever time we have Sunday and finish it Wednesday or whatever. And so we'll just delay a little bit of our class on Revelation. So you can go ahead and finish Jude in your home studies and hopefully start your studies of Revelation as well. And we'll get into that starting on Sunday. Let's close with a prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here tonight. And we're so thankful that you have blessed us in so many ways. We're thankful, Father, that even as we have so many people who are away traveling, we know that, that, that you love our family and will bring us back together as, as, as much as is possible as soon as is possible. Help us, Father, always seek in our lives to glorify you, to trust in you, to shine your light. Forgive us where we fail you. In Christ's name, amen.